because there are fewer students in the 103 class that meets right before with you, and there were more of them here than there are of you here right now. So. <laughs> See, I get, everybody's just that frustrated over the test, right? I know, I know. The, gr the grades are up. I haven't given it back yet, but the grades are posted on WebCT, so you're welcome to take a look at those. And I'll give them back next week. We'll get them back next week at some point. Uh, coming up, we have a quiz, an iTunes quiz that is due by Sunday. That's the last of the iTunes quizzes. And again, if you did fine on the first two and you want to skip that one, it won't hurt you because I dropped the lowest of those three. So if you did fine on the first one, you don't want to bother, but taking it won't hurt you. So if you go through and click randomly, you know, if you're one of those who just has to have everything completed, you know, on the assignments, you can't leave one sitting there, you know, that's fine. It's not going to hurt you no matter what you do on it at this point. The observation data, just the data themselves, I just need a copy of what you have. You can email it to me. You can just give me a copy, bring it in. I'll photocopy it if you need me to, you know, next week. On Monday I can do that. I can photocopy and give it back to you. However, I just need a copy by Monday because Wednesday or Friday, and I probably won't decide until after class Monday when I see exactly where we are and which day I want to do it. It'll be Wednesday or Friday. We're going to go through that data as a class lab, so we'll have a double lab week essentially. So we'll lose one lecture to a lab and we will go through and go through all the calculations. I'll go through a sample and show you that and then I'll have you do the calculations. I'll have you do the graphing, sort of do an extra lab in, in class. And then you'll have all that data. You'll have my numbers to use, but I just want to see what you've done before that point, before I actually give you out some numbers there. And then the following week we have, or next week, we have an article review due. You have the exam makeup assignment. If you weren't here that day, I do have those. I have copies of that here if you wanted that. That's due December 2nd. And homework 7, which I gave out last, last week or something, I remember, is due, is due then to it. I give out this week. I don't remember now. The blue days are blurring together. If you haven't gotten homework seven yet, I'll figure it out. But you should have had homework seven now. So that's what's coming up. And then the rest of the stuff, everything else is coming up. There'll be, we have like another quiz that'll be due right after that. And then everything else is due the last day of class. So everything else will be due the end of the ninth. In terms of the observations, there'll be a final. And there'll be one last quiz that will do that final, that final week. So that's what's coming up. So we're getting into December now. It was August yesterday, I know. At least it felt like it. The semester has zipped by. Any questions? No? No? Okay. Our picture of the day. We have a set of telescopes. But these aren't actually radio telescopes. These are actually a little bit shorter wavelength than radio. These are actually the millimeter length. So a little bit, a little bit shorter wavelengths than radio and a little bit longer than the infrared. And the picture is taken from a plateau in the Chilean Andes. So these telescopes are actually put out in the middle of nowhere. You know, Got to go up the, up the Andes Mountains. What is it, 5,000? Remember what the, oops, hit the wrong button. Let's do that again. Altitude of over 5,000 meters, so 15,000 feet. So you're way up there in the atmosphere. So they're, put out, they're way up there, in the, up there above a lot of the atmosphere, which is one of the reasons we put them out in the middle of nowhere, put them up in the top of the mountain. Because when we're observing in the millimeter range, millimeter wavelengths are also absorbed by, uh, absorbed by water. So as water in the atmosphere will absorb them. So if I tried to put these down here, you know, set it up outside of Harrisburg, you know, you're not, it's not gonna, you know, the light's not going to interfere with it because it's longer wavelengths. It's not going to affect that. But the, all the water, especially what we've had the last couple days, is going to wipe out any of the signals actually getting through the atmosphere. So they're put in very dry areas on top of mountains where you're up above a lot of the atmosphere. Now the rest of what you're seeing in the picture is you can see the Milky Way galaxy stretching across here. And very bright object actually is the moon. That's not the full moon, though, it looks like it. But this was actually a very thin moon. You wouldn't see most of the others. If this was a full moon here, it would wash out everything else. It's actually a very, very thin crescent moon. But because of the length of the exposure, it kind of gets washed out. And you just see the whole area. It, looks like, it almost looks like a full moon. But it's actually a very thin crescent moon. If that were a full moon, it would blot out everything else that you see right around it. 
The other objects that you see, there's a little streak from a meteor coming through, or a couple of them. And then there's a couple of clouds over here. Those are actually two galaxies. So those are two small galaxies. They're little satellite galaxies to our own. They orbit around our Milky Way galaxy. So if you could be outside of our galaxy looking, you'd see our galaxy here. And you'd see these two small galaxies, as well as a number of others that are part of our local group. Remember last chapter? And that actually orbit around it. They're not visible here, but those are, that's actually how they'd look. This would be a naked eye picture. So you could actually go south of the equator, you know, go down to South America, Africa, Australia, you know, any place south of the equator, these two objects are actually quite visible in the sky and looked sort of like, you know, a big fuzzy patch in the sky. And they're actually two, they're tiny galaxies compared to our own, but actually two very small galaxies that are companions of our galaxy. So, but you got to make a trip to see them, so we got to put in for hack to do a field trip or something. Study astronomy abroad, right? You know, that be take astronomy and travel the world to see all the see all the different observatories and all the different sites. That would be fun. Okay, questions before we zip further out beyond the galaxies. Dark matter. All right. So that's where this is where we finished up last time. Yeah, I know. We were talking about the gas in the galaxies. This is the gas between the clusters of the galaxies. So I'm going to go out and see. Go back and forth a few times. What we were talking about was the, the gas between gas in the clusters of galaxies. So I'm going to go back a couple slides, but we'd see clusters of galaxies, and we'd actually measure this very very hot gas, 10 million degrees, that filled the whole region around them. And it was one of the parts that might be one part of the dark matter. But you know, dark matter may not be just one object. It may be you know, a number of different kinds of things that add up, but it's not near enough. There's not near enough of this gas that we can detect to account for 10 to 100 times the mass in all of the galaxies that we're seeing. So that was where we finished up last time. We were looked, I mentioned, mentioned that. And we're going to jump on to galaxy collisions collisions now. But again, as I said, not nearly enough of it to be the dark matter in the clusters of galaxies that we see. Not nearly. So there's something else out there. There is still some kind of dark matter that we cannot see. Something we cannot see, we do not detect at any wavelengths to account for all of the mass and account for how all of these galaxies are moving. Okay. So then for today, we do galaxy collisions. Now we didn't talk about star collisions when we talked about stars. That's because stars don't collide for the most part. You could, I mean technically, yes, if you hit, hit two stars exactly head on, they could collide together. The only star collision we talked about was maybe when those two neutron stars were orbiting close together and they'd get into a decaying orbit and they'd actually combine together. But galaxies are actually relatively close together compared to how big they are. So if you look at how many times you could fit the Milky Way between the Milky Way and Andromeda, was that our homework question, for the first homework question? I can't remember if that was this class or the other class. I can't remember. I'm going to do that in one of them. I have to calculate how many Milky Ways would fit between here and Andromeda. It's only like 25. It's only like 20 or so galaxies. You can fit our galaxy 20 times between here and Andromeda. It's not very many. How many times could you fit the sun between the sun and the nearest star? You know, how many trillions upon trillions upon trillions of suns it would take to stretch one after that to the nearest star. Galaxies aren't like that. Galaxies are very big and very close together. So it only takes 20 galaxies, so it's much more likely for those two to actually collide. Now here's an example of a collision, of a colliding galaxy. This is a mixture of all sorts, in case you're wondering about the colors, it's a mixture of all sorts of different wavelengths taken together. You've got infrared, visible, ultraviolet, and x-ray. So the colors really are, are looking at different things there. But you get a very intense region around the outside, probably where there was gas and dust that has now been pushed through and pushed together. And you're forming lots of stars out here. And it may have been caused by a collision of this galaxy. So over hundreds of millions of years, the galaxies will collide. So it's not a collision in terms of, you think about it, we talked about collisions in terms of an asteroid smashing into something. You know, it happens instantly. 
you see the effects. If an asteroid comes down, a small asteroid comes down and hits you know, in, in the courtyard out here, you'd see it. We don't see galaxy collisions on our lifetimes. It takes hundreds of millions of years for them to collide. So they're just slowly passing through each other and we see the remnants afterwards. So we see that this galaxy may have passed almost right through this galaxy. So the stars just passed right past each other, you know, never hit. Because there's so much space in between them. The odds of, you know, 10 stars could be passed between us and Alpha Centauri without us even noticing it. There's so much space out there. But the galaxies collide and their gravity interacts. And the other thing that will collide is the dust clouds. Remember, dust clouds are big. Dust clouds are not the size of a star. They're the size of, you know, millions of times the size of the star, billions of times the size of a star. So they will actually collide and ignite star formation. So that's probably why you see all this energy going on out here. But we see a lot of galaxies like this. What galaxy type is that? It's not an elliptical. Doesn't look, I don't see any spiral, maybe vaguely. But lenticular, does it have a disk? But it has, you know, it has gas. You know, it doesn't really fit anything. Irregular. There's a lot of galaxies that would be classified, that would be classified as the unusual types of galaxies. There's just nothing. They don't fit any of the normal classifications. And it's actually a good number of the galaxies. There's not just you know a handful. There's actually a lot of them. Here's another example of two galaxies colliding. Now you can see the structure of the galaxies. These might be, these are probably in an earlier stage of the collision because that looks like a nice spiral galaxy. Doesn't look like anything's happening to it yet. But they're just starting to. Now if you could come back a couple hundred million years later, if these are colliding and coalescing, you'd see star formation enhance as they collide, as the gas clouds in each compress together. And eventually they might actually merge together, depending on how things actually, how it actually works. You might actually combine the two cores, make a larger black hole, make an active galaxy for a while. You start feeding that black hole, you start pushing things into that black hole. All of a sudden a black hole, even like the one in our galaxy, which is relatively quiet, if you start giving it some fuel, it'll start producing more energy again. You'll start to energize the accretion disk around it, energize the materials going into it. So you can actually turn galaxies from nice, quiet, calm ones into active ones by colliding them together. And we see a number like this. Now you do see a, no, a lot of blue there. This is just a visible light, so now you're looking at blue is where the young stars have formed. So some of this is over here, it's just not associated with the collision. Some here may actually be associated with these two galaxies colliding together. Here's the antenna galaxy. Antenna galaxy, because it's got these two streams coming out of it, like two antennae coming off of it. But you have two galaxies here, and then you have a stream of material going out here, and a stream of material going out here. When you look in, when you zoom in and look at the core here, this little section, you actually get all sorts of gigantic star clusters, really big star clusters. There's one core of a galaxy, there's another core of a galaxy. So you have a lot of star, the star formation has been enhanced by this collision. Because as I said, the stars aren't colliding themselves. Stars are fine. They'll, go, they'll pass, happily pass right through each other. The gravity may change their orbits and swing them into different orbits over time. But they don't actually smash into each other and destroy each other. Whereas the cluster, the galaxy, the star clusters and the gas clouds do, and when they collide, they start to form clusters. But instead of forming just little clusters as we have in our galaxy, you're forming super giant star clusters, much, much bigger star clusters. Now the example on the right is actually a computer simulation that's done. So if you do a computer simulation, you put a bunch of stars together, you put in the equations to tell how each star is interacting with each other one, and you collide them together and adjust the paths, Depending on how you do it, if you try to simulate, you can actually get something quite similar pattern to what you see in real life. This is what we see on the sky. This is what we see in a computer simulation. Not exactly the same because when you do things in a computer simulation, you make a lot of assumptions that don't really work out in the real world. You know, the galaxies were completely smooth and uniform and the stars were exactly evenly distributed. So, 
Doesn't that look overly symmetrical compared to the other one? Because you tend to make everything, it's very easy to make everything symmetrical in a computer simulation. But in real life, while there might have been a few, there have been some more stars on one side of the galaxy than on the other, so it's not going to be symmetrical in reality. There also could have been other dust clouds involved, there could have been other objects involved. But the general shape, the whole shape of throwing out these streams of stars, is not that unusual. Now let's go ahead and let me end this for one minute. I just wanted to do one to show you here. This is actually a little galaxy collider. So if we put one, so if we actually start with the galaxy, as I said, the pretty stars are set up pretty uniform, spread out throughout the galaxy. But this is an actually an applet that's been done where you can adjust a few things. The one thing you're adjusting is the distance between the galaxies when they get the closest together. You're adjusting the size of one of the galaxies. You can adjust the number of stars. And you can add some things in if you want to spread out the size of the stars, if you want to add things like friction into it. But then once you do, when you start the simulation and the galaxy comes in, now they're not going to hit head on here. But you can see how the gravity deforms them and actually takes that almost spherical galaxy, made it spiral there, and you get all sorts of interesting little patterns left here. And it's just sort of a cute little, cute little thing to play with. It, play with. Um, you can adjust it so that you can do a head-on collision. Let's do a head-on collision with a little galaxy. Let's have a little galaxy. So this time I'm going to make the red galaxy a lot smaller, about a tenth the size of the, this bigger galaxy, but go almost straight through it. So it's a much smaller galaxy. You can see how it got deformed very drastically, but even that galaxy that was a tenth of the size gave us some very interesting, gives you some very interesting patterns that look sort of similar to maybe what we've seen in the sky. Some of those round, round that one, the first one we looked at, where it looked like something plunged straight through it, you get almost something similar in terms of the circular patterns here. So, it's one you can play with. You one you can you can play with. This is from uh, Case Western Reserve University. Where's the original? The main page here is here. If you want to take a look at it yourself at some point, um, you can do that. It actually crashes. It actually smashes a couple of galaxies together. Um, there's another one. There's actually two versions of it. One is from this gentleman at Case Western Reserve, and the other is from a gentleman in Oregon. So there's actually two different sites for it. And actually, if you, there's another one that isn't related to them, there's actually an app for your iPhone, iPad, where you can collide galaxies together. I've, bought, I've got the free one. There's a free version and a $2 version. I haven't shelled out the $2 to see if the other one was any good yet. and It was worth the $2. But there is, a, there is a free for the iPad and the iPhone. You can do that. You can actually do this not exactly the same. It's not done by the same people, but quite similar. Question, ma'am. Not necessarily. Okay. You could collide them together and make an elliptical galaxy. In fact, if you smash two spiral galaxies together early in the universe, or a lot of them, that could be a way elliptical galaxies actually form, because smashing them all together uses up all the gas and dust. Once the gas and dust is gone, the thing you probably wouldn't do is it would be very hard to smash two elliptical galaxies and make a spiral galaxy. You might make the shape temporarily, but there's no gas and dust. Two elliptical galaxies collide, all you're colliding is stars. So you might get some interesting patterns, like more like what I'm showing you here, but you wouldn't actually get that. But you do, you do get a lot of spirals, and it's actually one of the things we'll come back to. It's one of the, you can actually form spiral galaxies on your, you know, you can form spiral galaxies from just a plain disk galaxy if you hit it the right direction. Uh, let's see. Um, try this, about 25. If I can remember one that works about right off the top of my head. Slightly smaller galaxy coming by. We'll distort it a little bit. They sort of try to grab for each other there, but you kind of sort of see how the... There. 
we made a spiral galaxy. Or a spiral shape. Now, if it originally had stars and gas and dust, maybe that's where some of the spiral structure. You know, I talked to was talking about spiral arms. Where did they come from? Maybe that's where some of the spiral arms came from. Maybe they were initially, and that wasn't even much of a collision. They didn't, they didn't even touch each other. You know, they just passed by close enough that their gravity distorted each other. You had a nice smooth galaxy and a nice smooth galaxy, and they both ended up getting distorted. The other ones now we're way out here someplace, or is it too far out to find? There it is somewhere. Well, since they're about the same mass, it did about the same thing. Again, there's a symmetry to them. They look almost the same because you make a lot of assumptions. You make gravity event all the same. Even though there might be more matter in one part of the universe, there might be more matter in one part of the galaxy that would distort them in real life. But sort of interesting. And I say, if you want to check out the one, I say, I know, I know there's one for the, like the, for the Apple products, at least. I don't know if there's one for Androids or anything. OK. But there's actually, so that's one you can actually play with yourself, which is kind of interesting. All right, back to where we were. So, that was collisions of galaxies. We think that galaxies, and we see all these real big galaxies now. We talked about a number of them. I said we have these giant spiral galaxies that we've seen pictures of. We have very, even bigger elliptical galaxies. We don't think that's how galaxies originally formed. We don't think that they just formed in the early history of the universe as a giant elliptical galaxy or a giant spiral galaxy. We think that it happened slowly over time in the first few billion years of the universe that things tended to form on much smaller scales. So when you look back, 5,000 megaparsecs, that's 5 billion parsecs, or you know, you're looking back to the edge of the universe, essentially. You're looking to the very earliest galaxies. They're all very small. They're all very big super star clusters. You know, not like the little star clusters we have today, but much smaller star clusters. And maybe over time, what happens to the galaxies is that they slowly coalesce, collide, and form new galaxies. Now, I showed you some that passed each other on the simulation there. If you actually turn on the friction and add a little bit more friction between the galaxies as they collide, they'll coalesce together. So instead of going separated, separating off into two disturbed galaxies further out, which may happen too, you could have galaxies collide the right way and lose enough energy and actually combine together and form a bigger galaxy. So these might be what the earliest galaxies looked like. And they were not you know, the big majestic spirals and giant ellipticals that we see today, but very, very small, irregular galaxies, tiny galaxies, and star clusters. And that slowly over time, you had a lot more back here. So there's what we're looking at when we're looking way back, deep and deep, deep out in the universe. We're seeing it as it was many billions of years ago. And then when we look at the nearby galaxies, we're seeing the effects of what has happened over those billions of years. So it's one of the advantages of a, in astronomy and combination of disadvantage is that when we look out and we look at the furthest distances in the universe, we're not seeing them as they are right now. So when we look at these galaxies here, we might be seeing them as they were 12 billion years ago. When we look at the nearby galaxies, we're seeing them as they were only a few million years ago, essentially today. They haven't changed that much in that time, probably. So we're seeing, so we can watch as we look at galaxies at different distances, we're seeing the, we can see the whole stage of evolution. Sort of the way we looked at stars. We couldn't look at a single star and watch its evolution. You know, I traced it on the HR diagram. I said, yeah, it starts on the main sequence and it goes up to the red giant branch and it does this and that. But you couldn't actually watch one star. You know, we couldn't sit there in class and say, we're going to study this one star and watch it. We could do it through simulations. But we can do this with galaxies. You can do a similar thing. Instead of looking at a number of, a number of stars, you're looking at a number of galaxies. And you look at the furthest galaxies, and you look at the ones that are closer and closer, and you can almost see a progression from the very small galaxies that made up the very earliest stages of the universe to the much larger galaxies that seem to exist close to us today. So here's an example looking at what we call the Hubble Deep Field, which is looking very far out into the universe. It's actually something we're going to look at in the regular lab next week, I'm doing a lab that actually has you look at some of these and look at some of the galaxies and try to 
do a different kind of classification of them. But when we look at these and we look much further out, we see some, there's some elliptical galaxies. But a lot of what we see are very, very small, irregular galaxies. So depending on how far back you're looking, you might see some that have started to combine. And you'll see some that have not. Now when you're looking at these, you're also looking at all different distances. You see all those little numbers there. Those numbers are measures of what we call the redshift. Redshift is essentially the, do the Doppler effect, showing the amount of the shift of the Doppler of the hydrogen lines. So the bigger the number, the more distant the galaxy. So these ones that are at twos are very, very far away. Two, three are very, very far away galaxies. Some of these big ones that we're looking at here are much closer. Point two is a much closer galaxy. So when you look at these ones that are much further away, they tend to be much smaller galaxies. You don't see the big giant galaxies seem to be closer. So it sort of supports the idea that galaxies form slowly over mer by merging together. But we still have to come up with how do we merge them together and we're forming two completely different types of galaxies, which is quite interesting. We form spiral galaxies which have all sorts of gas and dust in them. So there's got to, the merger process, process has to work two ways. It either leaves some of the gas and dust, not a lot because re honestly there's not, I say there's gas and dust in spirals but it's not a lot of them, it's only a couple percent of the mass. But enough that we can still form stars and there's ellipticals that have essentially nothing. So however the merger process works, it has to be able to form these two different types of galaxies. Now here's the starburst galaxies. So another type of collision. Again, as you smash through, you smash the galaxies together, stars go right through each other, but the gas clouds will collide. And the gas clouds will collide and increase the rate of star formation. So you see, this is visible. This is in the infrared, and you can see the brighter areas in the infrared, possibly where, star, where gas clouds had collided and formed, and formed, forming new stars that are currently forming new stars. So we're constantly, when you collide two galaxies, it's very good to trigger star formation. It's just the key as to whether does it eliminate enough of the gas, or almost all of the gas, and it may be a matter of how the, different gas how the different galaxies collide. If they collide in a certain, you know, head-on might do one thing and edge-on might do something else depending on how they're coalescing in terms of eliminating all of, the, all of the gas. Here's an example of cannibalism. So when we look at this galaxy here, if you ignore the little inset box, it's just a nice big elliptical galaxy, right? But when you look inside, you actually have three cores that, are, that will slowly combine, come back in 100 million years. Take a picture of it again. And then you'll only have one core there. So we're catching it right now that probably galaxies have collided and they're probably in the process of coalescing together. And that's one of the ways we can build up these big black holes at the center of the galaxy. You know, two black holes can combine together and form a much larger black hole. But, and we don't see any effects of it. And you won't see the two black holes colliding. Once you get inside the event horizons, you don't get any information about it. So they can collide very easily together. Now we talked about this, and I just showed you this on the other simulation, but here is a way. You can make a galaxy. Here's how to make a spiral galaxy. So you collide sort of an edge-on interaction a little bit and you do a similar type of simulation and you get the galaxy coming in just right. And in this case you can, you know, there's some simulations you can adjust more things. You can adjust things like the speed and everything. So you can try to get it. This one actually kind of orbits around it once instead of just passing it by. But you see the same sort of pattern, the spiral pattern appear in the, in the material there. And if you've done that and there was gas and dust in this galaxy, you've now taken a galaxy that was nice flat disk and converted it into a spiral galaxy. Now that doesn't take an elliptical galaxy into a spiral. They're looking at just a disk there. As I said, it would be very difficult to get an elliptical galaxy into a spiral. The other way around I can see very easily because you can smash all the gas and dust together and get a tremendous burst of star formation as we see in those starburst galaxies. But 
How you're going to collide the, the galaxies together and produce the gas and dust is a much more difficult thing. Which actually lends to the fact that the biggest galaxies that we see are not spirals, they're ellipticals. So as the galaxies get bigger and bigger, all the gas and dust seems to be used up. And the giant galaxies that have, you know, maybe might have 100, 100 billion stars, but the ones that have trillions of stars are all giant elliptical galaxies. Okay. Here's a couple supermassive black holes orbiting each other. So you see the black holes. You're not seeing the black holes. You're seeing you know, the accretion disk around the black holes, certainly. But as you look deep into the core of, this, of these galaxies, you can see objects moving very, very quickly at high speeds. And if you have two supermassive black holes, you're talking about things that are many millions of times the mass of the sun that are orbiting around each other at high speed. And yes, you can see the energy coming from outside if they each have an accretion disk. But they're, they're, they're also going to be in slowly decaying orbits. As they get that close together, if they have disks, as they start to rub together, you lose a little bit of energy and they spiral in a little bit more. And they're going to slowly be coalesced into each other. So again, come back in a few million years. And we take another picture of this. You might only, you'll be down to just one black hole that is the mass combined of the two. So it'll be a much bigger black hole. And that's probably how these large black holes at the center of galaxies were created. You know, it wasn't a supermassive star that was, you know, to make a 4 million solar mass black hole with a 3.7 at the center of our galaxy, you don't have a 5 million solar mass star. I mean, that kind of star is believed to be unstable. Anything more than about 100 to 150 times the mass of the sun. They would have slowly coalesced from black holes that formed through that method, but slowly coalesced and got bigger and bigger. So, but these are two that will merge again, okay, 400 million years, not just a couple million years, you gotta come back a little bit later. But slowly over time, they will coalesce together. Here's a galaxy, again, we're looking at a, if you look at the radio image and you look very, very close, the inset there is looking in the radio is seeing the Doppler shift. Again, enormous speeds. I'm giving you some more evidence. This is going back to the black hole idea, giving you some more evidence of the black hole. And if you look at the speeds, when you're looking way down in the radio, so this is the visible picture of the galaxy, that's what we see. When you look way down in here, there's something in the core, and everything on this side, the hydrogen gas, that should be at 21 centimeters, right? Remember that one, is moving towards us very quickly. So it's shifted to much shorter wavelengths than that. The hydrogen gas on the other side of the center of that galaxy is going away from us incredibly quickly. Again, we can use that motion to determine what the mass of this is. This is a very, very small distance we're talking about. 0.2 parsecs is about half a light year. So half a light year is, you know, well, bigger than the solar system. We're talking about a solar system sized object, you know, a few solar systems. Since the nearest star is over four light years away, that's not a very big area. And when you have objects moving that fast, you can determine the mass and you have to have many millions, sometimes billions of times the mass of the sun compacted into that half a light year. So you couldn't put, you couldn't put a billion stars in between here, you know, within our solar system. Then you would start getting stars colliding if you put them that dense. But again, a little more evidence for black holes in some of these galaxies. Now here's some of these. Here's our Milky Way plotted. We have a very small black hole, relatively. But there actually seems to be a relationship between the size of the core, how much matter there is in the bulge, so how big the bulge of the galaxy is, and the mass of the black hole. So as you see, the, much, the bigger galaxies have, tend to have bigger black holes, which, makes, which would make sense to us. But it doesn't seem to matter whether you're looking at spiral galaxies or elliptical galaxies. Open circles or spirals, same thing works. Closed circles or ellipticals, same thing. They have the same sort of pattern. But you have, what you do notice, and one thing I mentioned earlier, as I said, here's your, look at your biggest galaxies there. Those are the galaxies with the largest black holes and the largest bulges. There's one spiral galaxy. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So, but there is a relationship. So the bigger the galaxy you have, it seems like the bigger the black hole. Which again makes sense with all the cannibalism. If the galaxy has formed through mergers, it would have been more likely to collect more material and make a larger black hole. Okay, how are we doing? Okay. Now the quasars, we looked at those in the last chapter. Quasars were the quasi-stellar radio sources. So they were found because they were a radio emission that coming from something that looked almost like a star. But when you actually zoom in and you actually have much more detailed observations, it's just that the light of that central part of the quasar overwhelms everything else. So if you can really look in detail, you can actually see here that there's material around that quasar. Some material around it here as well. So you can actually see some material around it. So the quasar is just the active core, very active core of a galaxy. But we don't see quasars today. They're all at the very distant edges of the universe. So you don't see a quasar you know, in our own backyard. You know, Andromeda galaxy is not a quasar. It doesn't have a very active, galaxy, active center. So it's, it's calmed down. But very early, and again, you've got to keep in mind that when we look back here and we're looking at things that are you know, 12, 13 billion light years away, we don't see them as they are today. We see them as they were 12 or 13 billion years ago. So many of the galaxies that we see today might have looked like this 12 or 13 billion years ago. You know, or to the astronomers who are living in this galaxy today, which is no longer a quasar. After 13 billion years, it's calmed down. Maybe it's a perfectly normal spiral or elliptical galaxy, depending on what's happened to it in the meantime. So the astronomers looking from there could see our galaxy as you know, an active galaxy. You know, we don't have a supergiant black hole, relatively small one, so we were probably never near as active as some of these. But you might have seen something like this again early on. But the th key is I'm trying to get you to look at is that it's, you're looking at it what it was a long time ago. We don't know what that galaxy looks like today. We can sit here and wait. You know, we can wait 13 billion years for the light that's leaving it right now to get to us. But that's the problem with astronomy is everything, the distances are so large and light does not travel infinitely fast that we only see things, we see things as they were a long, long time ago. And I said quasars occurred very early on. They've been gone for 10 billion years now. So very early in the history of the universe, if the universe is about 13, 13.7, 13.8 billion years old. So for those first few billion years, that's when all the quasars formed. So we see them there. When we look at galaxies that are closer than 10 billion light years, we don't see quasars. We still see some active galaxies. You see Seifert galaxies closer which may be a remnant as things calm down. There's still some activity, but we don't see the extreme energy of those. But the point on this slide is that the black hole didn't go anyplace. The black hole that was powering that quasar 13 billion years ago is still there. It's still at the center of the galaxy. So there could be some of those really large black holes that we were looking at on the, pre on the graph a couple of slides ago. They're still sitting around they just have used up, there's no energy source. There's nothing feeding them. And a black hole doesn't do much if you don't give, it's not like a star where it's generating its own energy. A black hole just sits there. It's just a big condensation of matter. But every galaxy, maybe not some of the smallest ones, but every decent sized galaxy will have a black hole in its center. So everyone we've ever looked at. Now maybe some of these little tiny dwarf ellipticals or things like globular clusters may not. Some of those may even have supermassive, massive black holes. But every galaxy, anything we've looked at, at the core has a supermassive black hole. If it's not being fed significantly, it's not giving off a lot of energy and we don't see it. We can see its effects on the gravity if we can see objects close to it, orbiting close to it, but we don't see, we don't see it as bright as it was early in the history of the universe where when you think about it, all the mergers were going on. You had all these little tiny galaxies colliding together and forming in all sorts of gas and dust. And that black hole was just, you know, sitting there very happy and well fed and gets accretion disk constantly had material and was heating up and giving off all this energy. After that first few billion years, a lot of that was used up. 
and everything is tied up now in that black hole. So here's an idea of how we think galaxies might have evolved. So we have two different things. You have two different ranges. You have a you have the little tiny irregular galaxies that formed early on. Now they wouldn't have had much of a black hole if any. Those have been very early in the history of the universe. Over time those would combine and start forming smaller galaxies. Then what you have is that perhaps you formed a couple of these would start combining. They'd have a lot of gas and dust. This is very early in the history of the universe, so a lot of gas and dust. Still relatively small irregular galaxies. But as they combine to form a quasar, so you have a little bit of some spiral structure around it and very intense emission at the core, then our thought right now is that one of two things can happen. So you start forming the quasars. Again, this is talking 13 to 10 billion years ago. You have a choice. You might get two things happen. You might get a major merger. You might get two quasars colliding, crashing together. That, for, that would form, again, another type of active galaxy, the radio galaxy. So we think if these two combine, that emits a lot of energy all at once. So you're releasing almost everything all at once. You're smashing these two big objects together, creating all sorts of energy, forming an incredible amount of stars all at once, using up all the gas and dust. So you get a radio galaxy, also called a blazar is another one, is com- composed to quasar. So you're a very, very bright, very, very energetic object and with the big large jets coming out. And that would eventually settle down as the, as the food source is turned off and the gas is used up and would become an elliptical galaxy. So combining two quasars might form you an elliptical galaxy. Because you use in that major collision, and again, not just a slightly off-center collision, you're talking almost a head-on collision, colliding these two, smashing these two together. A lot of energy, use up all the gas and dust at once, and form an elliptical galaxy. So all the gas and dust is gone. Star formation stopped 10 billion years ago. So after 10 billion years, and that's, that's all ellipticals done since then, is slowly go through its evolution, but has a gigantic black hole at the center. The other option you could do with the quasar is continue to collide it with small galaxies. So you'd use them up in bursts of star formation. You'd collide them together. You'd use up some bursts of star formation. You'd give out some things like Seifert galaxies. You'd have a galaxy that's brighter than a normal, normal spiral galaxy, giving off a little bit more energy, but not using up all of it, not a major collision like we had up here. And that could slowly evolve into a spiral galaxy, leaving some of the gas and dust behind. So this is sort of the currently thought method of how we get from the galaxies we see 13 billion years ago which were all little tiny things, in between to the quasars and the active galaxies that we see that existed maybe 10 to 12 billion years ago, to the current calmer galaxies that we see today. You know, in the last few million years, 10 million years, 100 million years, the closest ones to us. So that's sort of the current idea of how we go through changing from one galaxy to another. All right, on the largest scales. We're going to end this chapter with largest scales and then go back to that at the beginning of the next chapter again. Galaxies cluster together. We talked about clusters of stars. Well, galaxies cluster together as well. Here we are hiding in our little tiny local group, a little small cluster. But we're actually right on the edge of another cluster, so we may actually be a part of this Virgo cluster. And if you notice, they're all named for their directions in the sky. So they're named by what constellation they're in. That's just how we see them. We see a lot of galaxies in the direction of the constellation of Virgo. That's the Virgo cluster. Hydra cluster, Perseus cluster, Pegasus cluster. A lot of them are named by the different constellations, the directions that we see them. So we're part of this. We're part right on the very edge of the Virgo cluster. Which again, remember, that had a lot more. Our local group only had 40-some galaxies. Most of them were the teeny tiny ones. The Virgo cluster has a lot more, many thousands of galaxies in it. 
but we group them bigger and bigger. They keep grouping bigger and bigger. We see our little group is almost nothing. We start talking about groups of thousands. But this is the Virgo cluster, which had many thousands of galaxies. But it's not even the whole cluster because there's Hydra, and there's this Abel 3581 cluster, there's a, and Centaurus, and they're all together actually in one supercluster. So the galaxies tend to group on bigger and bigger scales as we look out further and further. They're grouping you know, not just one single cluster, but clusters of clusters, or what we call a supercluster. So here's some of the galaxies within the Virgo cluster. And you can just see how they're spread out. They're not uniformly spread out. There are concentrations of galaxies. There's some areas. You know, here in Virgo where there's a lot of galaxies. A little bit more up here, further north, Ursa Major. All the way down to the south, Centaurus, Hydra. Just again, you see that there's areas where there's lots of galaxies. Galaxies are, tend to form in certain areas, clusters, and there seems to be big areas between them where there's hardly any, very few galaxies. So we're starting to see a pattern in it in the universe in that there is some structure to the universe. That there's actually patterns as we get further, as we get further out and we look at all the, clusters, all the galaxies together. And again, you've got to think about this. You're talking about you know, thousands of galaxies in the Virgo cluster. You're talking about many millions to billions of galaxies when you're looking at the whole image here. Go a little bit further out. So we're going up bigger and bigger scales. So we do it on this, they do it in kind of, of a pie, pie graph almost size. We're stuck down here at the center. That's us. So we're looking at everything as it's going away from us. And you see we have, well there's the Great Wall. Not the one in China, the one out in space. But there's a Great Wall. I mean it, it's a large wall of galaxies. As you go out at this distance there happen to be a lot of galaxies which are receding at a certain velocity from us or at a certain distance, about 100 megaparsecs. But you see other structures. You see as you go out here, there's, they tend to group into chains and clusters. And you also see, ignore the fact that you're seeing very few out here, we'll come back to that, but there are big areas even close to us of what we call voids where there are much, there's much less, many fewer galaxies, do it that way, not much less galaxies, that doesn't sound right. Many fewer galaxies. So in the universe, in structure, there is some structure when we look at this size scale. We see what we call walls, voids, and voids. So some areas where there's, there's nothing, there's no galaxies located there. Going out even further, the last one we looked was looking about in this little blue, looking about in that narrow range, we were looking there, but here we're looking north and south. And as you look further and further out, now you start to lose the structure. When you look even bigger, the structure disappears. So you see on small scale, so if I look at, if I pick a little random sample, I might get a lot of galaxies or I might get none. When I start picking bigger areas, it almost doesn't matter which area I pick, there's about the same number of galaxies as long as you're not getting too far out. Now when you, get, when you get further out, yes there is a decreasing number of galaxies, but just because they're galaxies that are so far away that we can't see as many of them. So we're missing a lot of the galaxies. But overall when you start looking at things bigger than about 100 to 200 megaparsecs, so you're looking at something big, it doesn't matter what part of the universe I look at. The details are different, but in general it's the same. You don't see a gigantic wall out here or gigantic, any structures that stretch out through the entire universe. The universe gets very, very smooth when you look at it on the very largest scales. Quasars. The interesting thing about quasars, I told you, they're very far away. They're at the very known edge of the universe. 13 billion, 13 plus billion light years away. The interesting thing about them, that light to travel through us has gone through all sorts of interesting areas. So we can study the light, we can learn something about the universe just by looking at the light of that quasar. We know about all of the area that it's passed through. Think about it this way, I'll show you the slide in the next, next, next one. But remember what happens, there's hydrogen gas throughout the universe, right? Hydrogen gas absorbs light at certain wavelengths. 
So if we look at the quasar at all these different distances, we can learn about the hydrogen that whole stretch. And let me show you the picture here that will actually show you that it absorbs slightly differently at each distance. Because remember, the whole universe is expanding, so this quasar is moving at us so fast that the hydrogen lines were shifted way out. Well, when you're a little bit closer to us than the quasar, as, it, as that light passes through a small hydrogen cloud, it's moving far, far away from us, but not quite as fast. So all of these objects it's passing through are progressively moving slower and slower, and you end up getting a forest of absorption lines. So as the line passes through, so as you go through, you can get each one little absorption line tells you about what the, what the hydrogen was like, how much hydrogen there was at each distance throughout the universe. So it's passing through all these many thousands of different clouds, millions of different clouds. Each one, they're all receding from us because they're all part of the expansion of the universe, but they're receding from us at different amounts. So when we get to the ones that are closest to us, they're going to be at the proper wavelength. And you look at this line, it's been shifted, you know, way out. It should be right here. This is the, this is the primary um, ultraviolet line of hydrogen. But when you're looking at a distant quasar, it's shifted out here well into the visible part of the spectrum. But as you get closer and closer, again, you see all this absorption is just, these are, this isn't noise, this is actually absorption by hydrogen. Oops. And I didn't realize we're at the end. Let me go ahead and stop there. I'll come back and finish this up next time. Um, we'll finish this chapter up on Monday and then go on. We just have 17 and 18 to go, so we're on pretty good, this class is on pretty good schedule. We should get through everything, even taking one day off to do the one day off to do your observations one of the days next week. So have a good Thanksgiving, everyone, at least those of you who showed up, even those who didn't show up. I don't want to curse them for not showing up, you know. <laughs> if you do need that, if you weren't here the day I gave out the make-up assignment for the exam, if you want a copy of that, I do have them up here. Otherwise, I said have a good Thanksgiving, and I will see everybody on Monday.